Hello and welcome to this week's Politically Speaking podcast, an early Politically Speaking podcast. I'm your host, as always, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio, Chris McDaniel. And joining me in studio today... Jason Rosenbaum of the St. Louis Beacon. And joining me from Jefferson City... Is Joe Manis with the St. Louis Beacon. And I am wearing tearsucker. I am not making this up. Are I'm you... in the Capitol, and I'm wearing tearsucker, so I really fit in. Joe has joined the seersucker revolution that is gripping Jefferson City right now. Are you in the caucus, Joe? Are you in the seersucker caucus? No. No, I'm just a reporter, but it's just I, I'm uh, exercising my constitutional right to wear seersucker, especially when it's over 85 degrees, and it's 91 outside right now. Well, we salute your right to wear seersucker. It is a God-given right given to us by God. So, And we have another announcement, actually. It's it's almost as important as Joe wearing seersucker. It's that we are recording a live podcast here at St. Louis Public Radio, uh, where we are inviting audience members to come in. You can ask us questions. We'll have all three of us here, as well as Marshall Griffin, our statehouse reporter, We'll be on the first floor of St. Louis Public Radio, which is 3651 Olive Street, and it will be— And that's next Tuesday. You need to tell them it's next Tuesday. Yes, and that is next Tuesday, beginning at 7 o'clock. It's, it's, yeah. it's a brave new world for the Politically Speaking podcast. Yeah, we're moving on up in the world. We're, we're a big deal. Yeah, that, and the key is, will we wear a seersucker event? <laughs> I, I do not own any seersucker. I'm, I'm sorry not, to I'm, say. I just bought a new computer, as I said last <laughs> week, so I need to cut down on my superfluous uh, purchases well, at the moment. this is a fairly new jacket, so I may actually wear it. Okay. <laughs> so that is Tuesday, uh, May 21st at 7 o'clock, and that is 3651 Olive Street. And we'll be tweeting about it nonstop. Yes. So by the time you hear this— <laughs> You'll, uh, you'll, you'll be, be tired of us. You'll be tired of us reminding you, so— <laughs> Just come on by and watch Politically Speaking unfold before your eyes. See the magic happen in person. The budget's been passed, Joe, so what are they working on now? Okay, and this is the final week, so the listeners need to know that time is running out. Uh, by Constitution, they have to finish at 6 p.m. on Friday. And the budget, of course, had to be done last Friday. With the budget technically out of the way, although there's some side issues, which I'll mention later, the legislature is now getting down to some of the uh, stuff that they've put on the back burner, much of it with a little political angle to it. Because, I mean, legislators are political beings. They all run in elections. So there's a little bit of that kept in mind. Uh, last week, uh, they, there had been some passage of... Uh, bill that in effect uh, was was aimed at preventing the enforcement of any federal gun laws in Missouri. Uh, this week, uh, the House passed and sent to the governor a bill that is aimed at, once again, every session they always pass some sort of uh, measure aimed at curbing abortion in, or abortion rights in the state. Uh, this one... Uh, it's focusing on RU-46, which is one of the uh, uh, drugs that can be used for early abortions. It basically causes a miscarriage. So as it is now, um, women who are being prescribed that, they're generally in the doctor's office for the first visit. They take the drug, and then they take a second dose at home. 
this bill will require that they also be in the physician's office for the second dose. It sounds rather technical, but for rural women who often have had to travel hundreds of miles because there's only a couple of abortion clinics left in the state, uh, the opponents say that this curbs their uh, freedom. Uh, the supporters say, no, this is intended to protect their safety because the supporters have cited uh, a few deaths. Uh, RU46 has been around for a while, but uh, they're citing some a few deaths and some adverse reactions as uh, reason for imposing this. Do you the think... more important thing is that is that in both chambers they passed it by veto-proof majorities, which sort of puts the governor in a situation of whether he signs it, vetoes it, sees if he can test it, uh, whether they would actually override, or if he just lets it go into law. He has done the latter on several anti-abortion measures since he became governor. In some cases, there have ended up being court fights over those provisions. In other cases... Um, he just let them become law, and there were no court fights by either side. So we'll see what happens with that. However, then there was also uh, two efforts to go after unions on Monday in the House. Mm-hmm. They passed the bill that um, this is actually the Senate version, and this is aimed at public employees, and it states that unions would have to get their approval every year before they could have from each union member before they could get automatic um, deduction of union dues, and they also would have to have annual approval before any of the money could be used for political purposes. Unions say that latter requirement is already in effect because of federal guidelines. But in any event, um, in the House they passed it, but it was only uh, only 86 members voted for it. It's 23 short of a veto-proof majority, so there's the expectation that the governor got a lot of support from unions will probably go ahead and veto it because he expects it won't be overridden. Now, in the in the Senate last night, they had a filibuster over a bill that had passed the House earlier that was aimed at lifting Missouri's prevailing wage requirements in rural Missouri. Prevailing wage also, which is supported by union, which has been in effect for decades, requires that public, um, that projects built with public funds uh, that, that they pay the prevailing wage in that area, and that can be higher because you're including uh, the union wages. There was a filibuster last night that went uh, past midnight, and the supporters finally cried uncle on that one. Yeah, why do you think that they? Could, why, why do you think that um, there was a filibuster on that bill? I mean, there's there's probably an expectation that if that went to the governor, it would get vetoed and there probably wouldn't be enough votes to override it. In fact, the genesis or the thesis of my notes column this week is about that exact practice of letting bills go through if they know the governor's going to veto. Do you feel like maybe they were unsure of whether this would get the veto votes? Um, I think they were because in the House, if you recall, when it passed, it was really close. So I think they figure that, um, A, they might actually lose that fight, B, I think that because they have the uh, uh, the, the pro-labor legislators who are in the minority in the House and, and in the Senate because of the Republican majority, I think they probably, labor was probably leaning on them to filibuster something. They had 
backed off on a few things strategically, either because they knew that there weren't enough votes to override the governor or that they uh, were basically picking their battles. I think they decided that this was one of the battles. So in the Senate, they really went to the mat last night. It said it was after midnight, and uh, I was following it, and they finally, uh, they back finally said, okay, we'll try again later. Yeah, they so, cried uncle, so to speak. So Correct. correct. And uh, uh, the filibuster was led primarily by St. Louis area uh, senators, uh, Scott Sifton. Gina Walsh was a major leader. And, yeah, and, uh, and, and, and I pointed out, out. Yeah, and I pointed out last night, and, and this was not meant to be a, a controversial point, but Sifton was not endorsed by the AFL-CIO. Uh, Jim Lemke was in his race. He did have other union endorsements, but it kind of correlates with the fact that, from what he told me and what other people have told me, that even though he didn't get that endorsement, he's still going to fight for labor issues, mainly because you know he's a Democrat, and typically Democrats are more favorable to unions and because the first senatorial district is kind of a, a union hotbed, so to speak. So I thought I would just yeah, mention now, that as yeah, an aside. Yeah, I had talked to um, uh, union leaders when that happened, when the endorsement came down, uh, because the fact that they went with Lemke and was that uh, the top labor leaders in the state told me then was that they endorsed Jim Lemke, the Republican incumbent, because they generally do support an incumbent who has voted their way on key issues, and Lemke had opposed right to work and some of the other issues that were high on labor's agenda. So they had endorsed him for that reason, mm -hmm. because they felt that they owed it to him since he stood up for them. Now, um, while they technically didn't endorse Sifton, Sifton was every every labor event, major labor event that I covered last year, were Democrats or whoever was there, he was there. So he was definitely courting the individual members, and I think also sending a signal that even though he might not have the endorsement of the AFL-CAO, I think, A, he was trying to get some endorsements of some of the individual unions, which you rightly pointed out he got, and B, he wanted to be on good terms with them because next time around he will need their endorsement. And so I think uh, he was trying to set the stage for that. Yeah. Especially, let's say, if Lemke decides to try to get his seat back. Yeah, so smart politics definitely by him, and it kind of shows he's not vindictive at all against people that may not have endorsed him. But having Correct. having dealt with him, he doesn't strike me as a vicious or vindictive person, but very smart, very smart legislator for sure. So, Right. So then, And then today, shifting gears a bit, the um, House gave final approval to a measure which now has passed both chambers which goes directly to the uh, 2014 ballot. It stipulates it's either the November 2014 ballot or a special election, if the governor calls one. And this is called the Right to Farm Bill. Now, the language is very general. And just based, I mean, on the ballot language, it's very general and states that, you know, farmers have a right to farm and to make a living. Uh, but the backers make clear that this is aimed at curbing the clout of um, animal rights groups, such as the Humane Society, who had managed to get voter approval in 2010, um, what was then called Proposition B, which was a measure to impose restrictions on um, dog breeders in the state. 
that was a proposition, not a constitutional amendment. It narrowly passed. The legislature came back and negated much of the proposition's requirements. The Humane Society and its allies had toyed with doing a constitutional amendment proposal on the 2012 ballot. They decided not to do it. Now, the fact that this has passed, I'm wondering if this might rekindle uh, their interest in encountering, especially since the backers have thrown down the gauntlet today. I mean, the statement with the passage made very clear who their target is. Yeah, and I wonder. Yeah, I wonder if this passes, whether there'll be a court case over it, because I think the animal rights groups, like the Humane Society, if they wanted to put something on the ballot, could point to this and say, "Hey, you're saying we can't do something based off a subject," and it it it, it seems like a, a an amendment that may be ripe for a court case if it does end up passing. That's just my inclination to it, because it does well, seem Well, and there unusual. may be a court case even before, because uh, the animal rights groups may try to challenge the ballot wording, saying that it's misleading based on what it really does. Yes. I mean, I'm not taking sides on this. I'm just talking about strategically. No, that's pretty what, common, so... What, what might happen both sides tend to do this, to challenge something in court before it goes on the ballot. So I'm expecting, especially since the proponents were so up front, uh, today, that they will do that. Yeah, I so, agree. Uh, I think that was uh, uh, interesting. That it's it's always refreshing when you're covering legislators or members of Congress who come right out and say what they're doing uh, on either side. And so in this case, it was refreshing. They just came right out and said it, even though it's not in the ballot measure. They make clear why they're doing it. Yeah. Now they also had there was a big barbecue. Uh, on the front lawn today that was hosted by some agriculture groups, and there are some farmers with cowboy hats wandering around them. Well, the hall today. So this is definitely uh, farm day at the Capitol. And soon it'll be pie day, I imagine. So <laughs> we're, we're, we're right on that track. But, but we should probably segue into the aforementioned budget fight that happened after the budget was approved last Thursday. It's a really... Okay, one of the parts is not that confusing. Basically, the legislature gave a third of a funding to the Division of Motor Vehicles, which we talked about last week. But this new kind of skirmish kind of popped up on the the last day that the budget passed and had to do with the circuit breaker, which is a tax credit that's given to low-income and disabled seniors and, and, and homeowners. And, um, and renters. And renters. And um, it, it got kind of intertwined in the budget, and it's a situation that's not not really resolved yet. Joe, kind of what is going on in that situation, if you want to explain the situation more okay. succinctly yeah, now than Jason, me. Now, Jason wrote a very good story last week about it that I encourage our listeners to go back and read. Uh, bottom line is what happened is that the um, governor early on and he has indicated this in previous sessions, that he was okay with eliminating the portion of the circuit breaker that goes to renters, which is uh, roughly $55 million a year in tax credits that the state loses over it. The General Assembly, and this really um, passed in the budget, what they did was they, they included the cut, and then they put the money in a special fund called the Senior Protection Fund, which had also been recommended by the governor, but the governor had said, well, they were going to use it for senior programs. 
But instead, what the General Assembly did was they earmarked it towards other programs that also have their own tax credits, most notably First Steps, which is a program that's for disabled children uh, to help get them ready for school. It's early childhood development for disabled kids. Uh, for those with long memory, this created a firestorm when Governor Matt Blunt, a Republican, uh, proposed doing away with First Steps out of the budget in 2005. He didn't realize what it was. There was a firestorm. The parents of all these children showed up at the Capitol. They ended up backing off. So, okay, fast forward eight years. Um, the legislature was basically trying to require the governor to make a choice between the the uh, circuit breaker program for renters or the disabled children in first steps. Now this is in one bill. The budget is really a, about 13, 12 or 13 bills. So each part is a different uh, agency, different department. So the governor has made clear that he's going to veto that part, that, that the bill that deals with that, the um, which would in effect leave the circuit breaker in, case, in, in, in place, but it could be the elimination of funding for these first steps program because it's not elsewhere in the budget. The um, House leaders are really upset about this. The Senate, though, which kind of blames the House for it, the Senate leaders were implying you know, this is the House's idea. They they uh, passed through a committee yesterday. It hasn't gotten to the Senate floor yet. But what that would do, it basically sets up a fund and lets the governor put general revenue money in it to fund first steps. And in the meantime, the governor is traveling the state today, showing up at a couple major places, talking about, guess what, first steps and how he supports it, and he's blasting the General Assembly's budget that took it out. Yeah. He also praised the Senate committee for putting it back in. Uh, Jones had a news conference late, uh, late Monday, last night I was there. He and uh, Rick Stream, the House budget chairman, were really ticked off by all this. They say, A, the Senate hasn't discussed it with them. So it's unclear if if the House will even vote on that fix if it gets through the Senate, and uh, and they were accusing the governor of playing politics with all this. Because yeah, I think the governor they... isn't saying that this is tied to the DMV fight. I mean, over the General Assembly's budget that doesn't fully fund the Department of Motor Vehicles, but there's some implication that this might be related to that. Yeah, but I think it also should be noted that you know after the governor. I think came out for eliminating this renter provision, which I think you you alluded to. He kind of did right. an about face and said it had to be linked with broader tax credit changes, and it right. kind of left the legislature, from what they say, in kind of a difficult position. So it, it's a situation where I guess it could have looked bad for the governor of him. I don't know. I don't want to say reversing his position because I think he still wants to eliminate it. He just wants to tie it with other things. But, you know, kind of shifting course where they could have probably capitalized. But now it's kind of it's kind of I don't want to say it's backfired, but it's not really looking great for the legislature from an image wise in many respects, or at least that's what right, some people are perceiving. The governor was contending he was going to put this in other programs to help the elderly and uh, they and um, they say, well, that wasn't really clear. The bottom line is both sides are accusing the other of playing politics with seniors or children in this. Yeah. And uh, it, it can be more difficult for the general public to figure out 
who is right and who is wrong, but the governor is using the bully pulpit this week, as I said, to travel the state, talking about how he loves first step. So he's obviously trying to stick the General Assembly with the with the uh, looking bad unless they pass a fix. But that's the last week of the session. Some of these uh, types of things happen. I mean, the, the only real serious thing that I think they may try to do this week is finally fix the second injury fund, which is the workers' comp fund for people with pre-existing conditions, which they've been trying to fix for seven or eight years now right. and haven't done so, but they need to fix it because there's some court fights going on. Yeah, but and there was, a, there was a recent audit about it. Uh, from December Which or so. backed up what Nixon and the current Attorney General Chris Koster were right. saying for years. Exactly. And that's a whole, we could do a whole separate show in the second injury. Oh, yeah. But the bottom line is they may get it fixed this week, but in the meantime, they're dealing with all this other stuff. <laughs> well, let's talk a little bit about a federal story that's been getting a lot of attention. Um, the IRS apologized last week for targeting conservative groups in their audits for tax-exempt status. Uh, Jason and I were at uh, the courthouse uh, in downtown St. Louis where a few Democrats, Senator Claire McCaskill and Senator Dick Durbin of Illinois, along with Congressman Bill Inyart, were there for uh, honoring a U.S. marshal. Um, but afterward, we got to talk to them a little bit about about what the fallout would be from this. And, and they were both... Very emphatic in condemning, yeah, in condemning this. Uh, McCaskill a little bit more than Durbin. Durbin said that it was you know absolutely unacceptable. It harkens back to the Nixon administration, and then McCaskill took it a little bit further, saying that someone should be fired. Someone called not. it un-American. Called I it un-American and an offense to what we are as a country. I want to make sure I could. <laughs> I, I want to make sure she actually said it was un-American. So if she didn't. Please erase that from the memory bank. Anyone that was in a position of responsibility (laughs) who knew that this very un-American activity was going on should be fired. Well, my memory is obviously better than I expected. (laughs) But here's the deal. I mean, Durbin and McCaskill's criticism kind of corresponded with Obama also criticizing this situation. He called it outrageous and promised to get to the bottom of it. So it's not really like they are breaking from the conventional wisdom about what's going on here. And I think that when you look at it in a vacuum, just siloing just Tea Party and Patriot and then making them answer a bunch of questions based off those terms does kind of amount to profiling. And I think that regardless of whether you like the Tea Party or whether you're conservative or liberal, um, I think that just raises a lot of ire among all politicians just because of the way it was done. Especially since when the IRS was profiling these smaller Tea Party groups, they were ignoring the ones that were spending hundreds of millions of dollars. Well, yeah. And I mean, that's kind of the subtext here, that these nonprofit groups were heavily involved in um, the election cycle. It was kind of a a offshoot of Citizens United. And Um, I think that there are some mainly on the left who are like, well, these groups that are audited might have been subterfuges for, you know, campaign contributions. And why are they, you know, even going to nonprofit status? I think I saw some verbiage like that in the New Republic or something like that. And I could be wrong, but I just think that the way it went about and kind of the the structure where they scrutinize these groups have just – pretty much gotten almost universal criticism throughout the political spectrum, including McCaskill and Durbin. 
Um, well, well, let's talk a little bit about what these groups are. They're 501c4s. They're supposed to be social welfare organizations, mm-hmm. and their election activity is supposed to not be their main purpose, but right. ostensibly. But I mean, not only are they a byproduct of Citizens United, let's just be honest here. They're a byproduct of the fact the federal election system has campaign contribution limits. I do not feel that these groups, maybe I'll back up for a second, because what I feel is kind of irrelevant here. But I think it's pretty likely that these groups wouldn't be so heavily utilized if they there weren't these campaign contribution limits. Now, is that a reason to get rid of campaign contribution limits? No. Oh, you. But I mean, I think that this is just a way for them to get around this. And I mean, it's more kind than, of weakening the, the ability for those to work. More than that, though, these groups don't have to disclose donors. So it's not yeah. only a, it's not only a way to get unlimited money. It's a way to get unlimited money without saying who you are. It's both. So correct. I, I think that the fact that they uh, don't have to identify who their donors are. Now, some of them voluntarily do so. Right. Uh, the, the Beacon does, for one thing. We're a nonprofit. Right. And, uh, we identify all of our donors. But not all groups do. And I think for some of these political groups, uh, or groups that are interested in the political process, let's put it that way, uh, keeping their donors um, secret is a major, major inducement for many of these wealthy individuals. So what's fascinating is that the IRS went after a lot of these Tea Party. I mean, they were monitoring the Tea Party. These are kind of small. Okay, they may have a number of people, but most of the Tea Parties, that's not where the money is. Right. The money is in some of these other groups, which apparently were not looked at. Uh, And we're talking about both sides here. I mean, there are more on the Republican side. I will say that. But, uh, But... but yeah, and and that's definitely it an appeal. Doesn't appear like the major groups have been probed. It's the it's the party groups, which frankly don't usually raise that much money. Yeah, and, and, and I, the New York Times wrote about it today. And the thing is that these larger five hundred one c fours they're heavily lawyered, and their their filings are artfully written was the way right. that they put it. And the smaller groups they they don't have that luxury. Well, well, let me just kind of finesse my my earlier point, which admittedly was broad and probably didn't include the secrecy aspect of it. But if you look at Missouri, which is admittingly a, a system that is not universally seen as favorable where there's unlimited right. contributions. And there are whole different problems and issues with that. I mean, you see 501c4s in the election process, but I would say the the majority of these big donations go directly to candidates. Not all. I mean, some still go to third-party groups in these. Right. But I think the fact the federal system has pretty stringent limits I think is the reason why money is flowing to these groups, either super PACs that disclose or these 501c4s that that don't disclose. And I think that obviously the secrecy aspect is attractive to a lot of these people. But if you had federal donation limits that were 50,000 or 100,000 as opposed to 5,000 and whatever, I, I, I think they would still be utilized, but I don't think they'd be utilized as much. And I, I think that this is just one of the byproducts of having contribution limits. Not a good thing. It's not a bad thing. It's just kind of reality. And I, unless anything changes, I just think that that's going to be the norm from now on. And, you know, they'll still be around even if there were unlimited contributions. But I, I, I just from from doing my power players uh, expose, 
I mean, it was really obvious that in Missouri, if you're a big donor and you don't really care about being shown that you support somebody, they just donated right to the candidates. And they'd sometimes use some of these groups, but they didn't use it that much. But in federal, you got somebody who gave like $5,000 to somebody and then gave, you know, a million dollars to a super PAC or, you know, a 501c4 that identifies donors, which I guess is rare. And I mean, what's really the difference there? I mean, maybe there's the, the idea that one person isn't getting overly influenced by one person, which I think is a real and, you know, serious issue with this. But if if, if you're giving money to an outside group that's basically going to do the same thing as your campaign, then it seems like both systems are kind of doing the same thing, just doing it in different ways. And it, it, after crunching that many numbers, it did kind of leave an impression on me, I will admit. You could probably tell by my verbosity, and you might have to cut some of this out. But I, I really do feel that you know these these groups are the the offshoot of these these limits, and that doesn't mean get rid of the limits. It doesn't mean you know do anything. I just think it's reality, and I think that if you, any objective person is going to make that same conclusion, so I, I think one of the unfortunate takeaways from this scandal is going to be less oversight of these five hundred one c fours. It could be, and right. Well, which is unfortunate. I mean, right. because I think. I think the issue really, there's one, all of them need oversight. The issue is if there was selective oversight. Selective oversight is wrong. Yeah. You know, it, it, and I, but general oversight, if, if you have to be fair about it. And, and if it, uh, if this, if, if it turns out they've been fair and it's just there's more focus on the one side in public, but that's really not the case, that's one thing. If it turns out they've been focusing primarily on conservative groups and not paying attention to some of the others, um, that is wrong. Now, admittedly, as I mentioned earlier, there have been an explosion in conservative 501c4s in the last few years, C3s and C4s in the last few years. But, I mean, uh, so you can understand the IRS looking at them, but they cannot be ignoring um, the... uh, other groups as well. And in fact, what's interesting is the one major group that lost their um, nonprofit status in the last year was well, a major Democratic group. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, nationally. So, uh, it, this is something that is being uh, played out, but you have to be fair about this. And if they're not fair and going after those small fish as opposed to the big ones. I mean, was the same that intimidating? You know, I mean, I think that's the questions that are going to be looked at. Yeah. So far, though, I haven't. I've been making some calls, and I haven't been able to turn up any evidence that um, any of the groups in Missouri were targeted. Mm-hmm. Well, this is a really fascinating topic, and maybe we'll discuss it next week. Uh, you can read all of my stories at stlpublicradio.org. You can read all of Joe and Jason's stories at stlbeacon.org. You can follow me on Twitter at, at @csmcdaniel. You can follow Jason on Twitter at J Rosenbaum. You can follow Joe on Twitter at J Manis. That's J M A N N I E S. We'll be back next week live, St. Louis Public Radio at seven o'clock, thirty-six fifty-one Olive Street. Uh, until then, so long. So long. <laughs>